Welcome to Hope for the Heart. This is William Rogers presenting the message today, which is uh, an exposition of uh, one part of the book of Romans. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, If you have been following along, we're doing an exposition of the entire book of Revelation. Uh, And today we are in chapter 11. And I want to read for you to give you the context, uh, the passage in just a minute, but just a word about what we're doing today. This uh, title of the message today is The Absolutely Invincible. And I think we're going to meet two preachers that are very much fit that description. And so this has always been a popular passage of Scripture in Revelation. People use this and try to always guess who these two witnesses are. So today we're going to look at some pretty interesting things about them. And then you can judge for yourself who you think these might be. So, Revelation chapter 11, I'm going to read beginning in verse 4, even though we looked at verse 4 last time. The text for today is verses 5 through 13, and I really hope that I can cover these. I know it's a lot, Uh, but uh, I'm going to read beginning in verse 4. The Word of God reads, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Verse 5, and if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky in order that the rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them. And overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those whom the those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days, and will not permit their dead bodies to lie in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now I'm not going to read the other three verses because uh, there is a remote possibility. I won't get to those. But uh, for the sake of time, I want to just go ahead and begin moving forward. In this uh, particular section of chapter 11, we meet two preachers. We called them last week two most powerful preachers. And they're ones who really are used by God as the instruments of... I believe, of the final harvest of the nation of Israel. Right before the very end, the day of the Lord, they are identified for us as two witnesses. We looked at that last week, and that's what verse 3 says. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And uh, the, the my and the I are drawn together, and we're saying that most likely that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've looked at that last time. And so today I want to get into really... The outline, and it's the eight-point outline. I don't usually usually like to give an eight-point outline, but I think some of these points will move rather quickly. They all begin with P. Uh, I work hard to get them sometimes to all have the same letter so that in one word so that you can write down, just jot down an outline. And if that's helpful for you, then I encourage you to do that. It's helpful for me in delivering this to keep me on track. So the first one is purpose. The purpose of these witnesses. I want to remind you that this tells us uh, uh, so much about them. They will prophesy. These two men will preach warning. They will preach judgment. They will explain the coming wrath of God. They will explain what is going on at the present time. And that is when they are there on the earth, when they are living at that time during the tribulation period. 
I think they're going to be warning people and proclaiming, this is what you're seeing, folks. This is what's happening. This is what's coming next. They will explain what's going on in the present. And believe me, it's going to get very confusing for the people of the world, and they're going to need someone to be able to explain that. And so I think these two special witnesses are going to be able to explain things as they follow along in the book of Revelation. They will be calling for repentance. They'll be calling for belief in in using the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will prophesy. Last week we said that word could actually mean to preach. Now, we we looked at also, well, who are these? Well, they're identified for us. Their purpose uh, in giving us this is to tell us who they are and use the imagery imagery that we used last week of Zechariah's prophecy found in chapters 3 and 4 of Zechariah. We saw two olive trees, two lampstands represented Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the ruler. These were the two men that God used in ancient Israel uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit to rebuild and revive Israel after their captivity. God raised up those two, uh, those two men that are called the uh, olive trees and lampstands, Joshua and Zerubbabel, to be his instruments to, uh, to stimulate and to motivate and to bring about a revival and rebuilding of Israel. And that was very much needed at that time. They were the agents, the human agents of God's plan, God's purpose, uh, in order to restore Israel physically and spiritually. They were, you remember, the golden pipes with which the Holy Spirit power flowed. And so we find that this imagery imagery fits that imagery in Zechariah. They were in the end, they were, they will be in the end time two witnesses, it says, uh, two other men. I don't think it's going to be Joshua and Zerubbabel. They're going to be two more men that whom God will use and God will allow his Holy Spirit to flow through them. The power to bring about a renewal, a, a salvation, again a restoration to Israel, and the bringing in of the glorious kingdom that will be very rapidly approaching. He uses two men in ancient. He used two men in ancient Israel, and he will use two men in the future. These two in the future are who we are looking at. The question is always, who are they? Well, people always want to guess Moses and Elijah. And I think I said last week, it, it is possible. Uh, the thing is, we won't know it. We won't know whether it's Moses and Elijah or who it is. But there are coming two men, and I think this is why we can't be dogmatic about this. Even though I know people out there are say they're absolutely certain, there's no way it could be anybody else. Uh, but I think uh, we're not. It just doesn't tell us any more than that. So we we come to this and we look at the purpose of these two witnesses and we see what they're going to be doing and and how they're going to be presenting. And it's going to impact the world. These two are going to impact the world. Uh, Just two men, they would have to be a very protected, very powerful, especially in the midst of what's going on. We can read Revelation all the way up to chapter 11 and we can see, wow, this earth is going to be confusing. People are going to be wondering, if is God really in control? Is Does God really know what he's doing? How come God is not being more obvious that he's at work? And I think it's going to be horrifying things happening. Demons, we read in chapter 9 alone, two different attacks of, of demons. One that causes men to want to just commit suicide, and they can't. They can't die. And then the other, uh, they are going to be given the power to kill one-third of the population. 
to massacre men so that they are literally dead. And then adding to that, the Antichrist is on the scene. And all the armies of the, of the world are, are gathering. There's, there's uh, cataclysmic activity in the heavens happening. Uh, you've got a horrifying scenario going on in the world. Uh, we've looked at this several times. So uh, it is going to be a very unusual time. And it's going to call for two very, individ- two very unique individuals uh, to handle this. And so number one is the purpose of them is to bring judgment and condemnation and preaching and yet repentance to people uh, on the earth. Now, number two is their protection. I want you to see this. Uh, this remember, this helps all in describing them. Number two, we're going to look at their protection. In the midst of all this happening on earth, if these two men are going to have any impact, they're going to have to be protected first from the wrath and the judgment. Verse 5 says, If anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Well, why would anybody want to harm them? I mean, these are, these, are, these are God's men. These are prophets. Well, the world's going to want to harm them because I believe the world is going to hate them. They're going to violently hate them. They're going to be preaching judgment. They're going to be preaching wrath, preaching vengeance, preaching repentance. You must turn or burn. Uh, I like that phrase. Some will repent at their preaching at first, but others will not. In fact, we read several times in Revelation, like chapter 9, verse 21, that people do not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their immorality, their thefts. They will actually refuse Christ, and they will, uh, love, where they're, they will love the darkness they're living in and the sin they're living in. So I think the world's going to hate these guys. Uh, God is merciful, and just before the final blowing of the seventh trumpet, which comes in verse 14 of this chapter, uh, He's going to send these two witnesses like Enoch and Noah before the flood of the Old Testament, the great flood in chapter 6 of Genesis, or like Moses in Egypt before the judgments, uh, before they were released from uh, uh, Egypt, and like John the Baptist who came just before the Messiah is a warning at the destruction of Jerusalem. God merciful sends preachers to warn. And this is what he's doing here. Now, people are going to try to harm them. I mean, they're going to be moving very fast uh, through this uh, time. And and In fact, the Bible even says that time, once it starts, it's going to be moving quickly. And I can't imagine the mindset of people as they approach these, or as they hear these, as they see them on the news, as they hear about what they're doing. And then it says, verse 5, if anyone desires to harm them, Fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Imagine seeing that on the news, where they actually will videotape someone who is wanting to harm them, and fire literally comes out of these two guys' mouth and scorches, burns up their enemy. It could be a tank, it could be a building, it could be a person, it could be an animal, whatever. But imagine seeing that on the news. And I think it's just going to cause a hatred. Uh... Because it's something that they, they, they just don't want to see. Somebody comes along, fires a gun uh, at them, and it, it, their camera happens to be right there. You know cameras are everywhere. So a camera's going to be right there, and boom, they're going to be gone. Uh, but notice the word devour there means consumes. I think it's literal as fire uh, is needed to, to burn up a literal body. Uh, this is what it's referring to. We desire to harm them in the manner he must be killed. It is necessary, absolutely necessary. It's a necessity. Why? Because they have to be invincible. That's why I'm, I titled this. They have to be invincible. And the message has to be sent loud and clear 
And here's the message <laughs> for these for the world is to these for people who want to harm them or, or not listen to them. <clears throat> number one, you better not fool around with these guys. Uh, number two, these guys are these guys are dangerous. People who have done uh, what they wanted to do to try to harm them, man, they have disappeared. They've been incinerated instantaneously. So, folks, I think that is the definition of invincibility or invincible because God doesn't want their preachers or his preaching to stop. He's allowing them to keep going. So they are protected. They're protected against anybody. They're protected against their God's own wrath and judgment. They're protected so that, in fact, verse 3 says they will work and minister the full length of time that God has ordained for them to minister, which is how long? Three and one-half years. To the day, I don't think they will... Stop one second too early. I believe there's going to be an effort concocted to get rid of them. There'll be strategies. There'll be probably uh, uh, armies may come against them. But it won't matter. They're invincible. So they will be protection. Number one, their purpose is to preach and proclaim. Number two, they will be a protection, verse 5. But number three, there will be power. These guys have to be powerful. Look at what it says in verse 6. They have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophecy. That's power. And that is God giving them this power. Remember, the Holy Spirit, by the designation uh, given to them, the two lampstands in verse 4, means that the Holy Spirit is just literally flowing through them as this power is working. And it says that they have the power to do this. It's an interesting thought. They have the power to shut up the sky in order that it may not rain during the days of their ministry, which means... Three and a half years. We could conclude by that that probably it means it's not going to rain. They are going to hold back up, the hold the, the sky, so that it doesn't rain during the time of their, their ministry. Uh, Elisha did it. Shut up the heavens for three and a half years. They're going to be able to do that too. You can only imagine the disasters that are going on all over the globe during this time. All the horrifying destruction that's going on. And then on top of that, it's not going to rain. Uh, they, and, and they're going to be proclaiming. Everybody's going to know they did it. But here's the interesting thing. They're going to know they did it, which must mean they have power over the weather, and they don't listen to them, and they're going to want to kill them. Would you want to kill someone who had power over the weather and the rain? I wouldn't. Uh, man, it's just going to exacerbate their hatred that is already there from people not being willing to, to repent. And remember now, the world has already gone through a massive change in the water. What little water still exists, they have the power over them to, listen to this, to turn them into blood. This is the last half of verse 6. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. Man, Listen, it wouldn't take but one demonstration to get my attention of that. Remember, remember, remember I can't talk. Remember now, uh, the world has already seen this. And back in chapter 8, the sea has had a, uh, a, a third of the sea has been destroyed. A third of the rivers, of springs have become bitter with wormwood. And, and so we see there's already a water shortage. And for these guys to have the audacity to stop it from raining and bring what little relief sometimes rain can bring, man, you talk about 
uh, hatred. Then at the end of verse 6, they are able to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Uh, plague here uh, is uh, whatever havoc or, or plague they want. Then we can look at plagues. We can go back to the Moses and Egypt and see a list of ten different plagues. And certainly, uh, this is not going to be a user-friendly duo, two guys. Their power is awesome. Uh, it makes, uh, one preacher said, it makes Samson look like a weakling. Uh, they preach repentance. They preach salvation. They preach grace. They preach forgiveness. They preach judgment. They are absolutely, invincibly unstoppable. And everybody in the world is going to know about them. There's no way. I mean, look how fast the world found out that Russia was building up forces against Ukraine. You think the world doesn't know exactly what's going on in that war? Sure they do. And so it is going to exacerbate their hatred for the the world for these guys. And that is going to uh, be woe to them, woe to those who... Uh, want to come against them. So that's the power of these two guys. But number four, there's a prize. And the prize is going uh, to shock you that I'm giving this as a, as a word here, a prize. Number seven, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. That's their prize. Uh, listen, death is not a, a, a penalty for these guys. Death is not something dreaded by these guys. These guys are fearless. And they know who they are. I really believe they know exactly who they are. They know that the power they have and the protection they have comes from God himself. You think they're scared to die? No. This is a prize. This is, Paul even said it, to be absent from, uh, to be, uh, death is to be uh, absent from the flesh and present with the Lord. And so this is where they, they know that. And, and they're very eager here. When it's, it says when they finish their testimony, that's an important statement. Uh, they finish the exact timeline God has put them on. It's a very important statement for that because uh, they are death-defying. They they are deadly in themselves, and not until their allotted minute or second is over will they be allowed to die. But look at what it says in verse 7. After they finished, the time is over. Remember, now everybody, nobody could kill them. Because fire comes out of their mouth, they couldn't be killed, but they had to be killed, and they did get, they did, they were killed. And then verse 7 says that they have finished their testimony. Notice that they're finished. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, do you think that the beast is just stronger here? No. This is God simply allowing this. It all comes to the end. The beast that comes up out of the abyss, this is the first mention of him. Uh, There's going to be a lot more times talking about him, especially if we get into chapter 13. But the beast that comes up will overcome them. He's been at work for three and a half years. I'm sure he's been uh, wanting to do this. I'm sure there's been strategies and plots and plans, but none have happened. So the beast is none other than the Antichrist, who made a pact with Israel at the beginning of the seven-year period, desecrated the temple. This same one is going to make war. But notice it says... uh, out of the abyss, the Antichrist comes up out of the pit. His home and origin and passion and character is hell. In other words, Satan himself possesses this man. Uh, he is a Satan-empowered man. He is a human, and he is empowered by the pit, the abyss itself. Now, where is this going to happen? This prize is not uh, the kind of prize uh, we would look at death as, a, I guess, differently. But I think they're going to see it as, man, they, they did their mission, and the prize is we get to go on to heaven. I don't think they like the earth. 
I don't think they liked having to see the sin and the wickedness and the demonic activity. So I think it's a prize for them. I may be criticized for saying that, but I think it is. And the place, look at the place. The place is uh, number five in the outline, verse eight. Their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom in, uh, in, in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That is the great city is Jerusalem. The great city is Jerusalem. Uh, but notice it doesn't call it that. It says Sodom in Egypt. Uh, that's what he had in mind. It's called uh uh, in, in chapter 21, verse 10 of Revelation, we see the holy city, uh, the great city, is called Jerusalem. But he identifies it as Sodom and Egypt, the two most wicked places, Sodom, a city, Egypt, a nation. Uh, they're both synonymous with wickedness, immorality, oppression, violence, or, or godlessness, or evil. How sad, how sad these men are killed in a city which was God's city, the same city where Christ was killed. But it becomes a reality uh, a, a rather better title for Sodom and Egypt because of the nature of where they are at the time that these are dead. So now remember now they're killed because uh, uh, because and this is important in looking at this place and the, the, their reaction to this uh, the great majority of their preaching goes on there in Jerusalem. So that's why they're killed there. Uh, and I believe that they are instruments that God uses to proclaim the saving gospel to Israel in the end, and it causes Israel's uh, ultimate belief. I think, in other words, we said last week, this is uh, the forerunner to the uh, all of Israel being saved. You can look in Romans chapter 11. Paul makes plenty of mention of this. And this is what he, God is using, these two lampstands and olive trees, to flow the Holy Spirit through to bring redemption. And I mentioned that at the very first of the sermon. So by the time the Gentile power under the Antichrist have overrun Jerusalem, and that's why these two terms are used for this. Now, number six, found in verses 9 and 10. Uh, number, remember, number one is the purpose. Number two is their protection. Number three is their power. Number four is their prize. They are actually going to go to heaven. Number five, their place, uh, the place where this happens is in the great city Jerusalem, or at that time called Sodom and, and uh, Egypt. Now, <clears throat> number six is a party. And I bring this up because that's, that's actually the way I read number six. It's found in verses uh, uh, really 9 and 10, but it, the forerunner of it is in verse 8 because their dead bodies lie in the streets of the great city. Uh, why would they lie in the streets? Well, I think this is this is what... Well, this is what is amazing. Uh, people will be able to look on, and the Gentile world there, or the whole world, will look at their dead bodies. How will they do that? I can remember many times uh, thinking uh, early and reading pro uh, uh, people that were speaking about prophecy, not knowing how this could happen because the age of television and the, the modern technology would not have allowed such things. But, man, we know. We're watching a bomb after bomb over in, in in Ukraine right now from Russia. We see how uh, correspondents are right there at the wars. I, I was watching a, a correspondent the other night. Literally, a bomb went off right behind him. I don't know how these guys do that, but they're there broadcasting. And so how will they do that? Television. Uh, television is going to allow the world to watch this and, and to take part in this. Uh, in the ancient times pagan people wanted to dishonor their enemies, they would leave their corpses lying in the street. That was the ultimate dishonoring, the ultimate 
uh, a penalty or, or celebration is to to show them uh, to show the world. Well, hey, this is this is this is our victory here, and so. Uh, but I want to read you a verse. It's found in Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-two. I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget it. If a man, here's what it says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he's to be put to death, you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. You shall surely bury him on the same day so that you do not defile your land. God says you bury him the same day he dies. So this is all in defiance. This is why pagan countries did this. They did bring a dishonor to their land, but they didn't see it that way. They thought they were bringing dishonor to the dead body. So here is a celebration. Look at verse uh, 10. Verse 10 says, And those who dwell on the earth, that's another word for earth dwellers or unbelievers or Gentiles, will rejoice over them and make merry. What? And they will send gifts to one another. What? you got to be kidding. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, I want you to think about something. Think about being alive at this time. You are a believer. And there will be believers. There will be Gentiles that are saved. There will be Jews that are saved. And how are they going to be responding when they see this on the news? Man, they're going to be saying, wow, these guys are, man, they are bold, they're powerful, they are godly men. And then to see this death and and to see the world making merry over them and mocking their death and whatever else they see on the television, it is going to be a celebration like the world has never seen. Uh, They're going to send gifts. This is going to be known as, mark my word, I started to title this, uh, this, it's going to be, as one writer puts it, this is not original to me, Happy Dead Witnesses Day. We have a day for everything. That's the way it's going to be during the tribulation period. I mean, this is going to be the ultimate uh, party. This is going to be the ultimate wild party uh, that that will be taking place. Now, remember now, this world is in a mess. The demons, so many have flooded the earth, 200 million, it said. And then the others that tormented for five months, men and, and people uh, coming straight out of the pits of hell, the Antichrist is masquering most in any who do not take us, who do will not stand with him. And in the midst of all these horrors and devastation, the water has been destroyed. Plants, animals, people in the midst of all of this, and the world is really angry. The world is mad at these two preachers of what are they? They are preachers of truth, and when they're dead. Man, this is a cause for a party. I would imagine every news store, every news station will be there broadcasting this. Those who dwell on the earth, man, they're going to make party, make merry. Uh, in fact, really, making merry is a literal Greek word, means to be of a jolly mind. Wow. How can they be happy in this mess? Well, they're happy because these men who confronted them about their sin and their iniquities and judgment of God are dead. Think about that. That's the condition of the of the uh, people living at that time. That's the moral compass if you want to look at one. That is the way they're going to view someone who stands in their way. Man, we can even see that today. Surely we can see that today. Man, we're, this cancel culture is canceling out conservatives and truth constantly, but it's going to get a lot worse. Man, their emotional response certainly parallels their spiritual condition. Amazingly, they start giving presents to one another. Because these two prophets, it says in verse 10, tormented those who dwell on the earth. That was torment. 
Breaching the truth. Presenting Christ. The need to repent and believe the gospel. That's called torment? Yes. The ungodly rebels, the unrepentant sinners, followers of the Antichrist are so sick, so weary of the power of these two prophets of truth that they put on a party like the world has never seen. This has got to be, you know, I'm from Mobile, Alabama originally. And man, the Mardi Gras day, the Mardi Gras season was big. I can remember as a child going down in the parades and, and then that Fat Tuesday. Man, that was all-day parades up until 7 o'clock at night when the last parade started. But this is going to be the ultimate Mardi Gras. Uh, they don't hate the Antichrist. They don't hate Satan. They don't hate the demons destroying them at the same time as much as they hate these two prophets, preachers of truth. But, I want you to see what happens next. Number six on the outline is party. Their party, the party that's given. Number seven is the panic. I want you to notice the panic. I'm, I, may, I may actually finish this. The panic is found in verses 11 and 12. And after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who were beholding them. Wow. Imagine in the midst of, you talk about a, a party breaker. You talk about a, a party killer. Folks, the party is over. Here they come again. Unimaginable panic, unimaginable fear when they stand on their feet because God puts life into their body. Now, let me tell you something. The decay process has already started. We know that from reading the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. We know that the sister said, but after four days, Lord, but this time he stinketh. We know the decay process has happened. And he, they've been laying in the hot sun. We know it's going to be hotter. I would imagine the decay process has been amazing. But man, verse 11 is pretty, pretty wild. I can't imagine. Imagine now being an unbeliever, if you can imagine that. If you, unless you are an unbeliever, you probably can't imagine that. But if you can imagine being there, watching the TV, eating your supper, and you see this. You've been wide. You know these guys have been laying. Well, you saw it yesterday. They were laying in the street. You saw it the day before. And maybe this is the, the maybe this is like the third of this is actually the beginning of the fourth day. They're laying there, and all of a sudden, verse eleven happens, and they stand on their feet. What do you think you would do? It says here. Great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. That doesn't mean those that are in the city. It means anyone beholding them throughout the world. Unimaginable. And they're not going to stand up and preach again. Look at what happens in verse 12. They heard a voice. Who heard? Who heard the voice? Well, listen to this. They heard a voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. The two witnesses heard the voice. And they went up into heaven, into the clouds, and their enemies beheld them. Man, they were resurrected right in front of them. Right in front of them. I can't even imagine what that must have been like uh, to, to watch that. It's the same kind of picture you find in Acts uh, after the resurrection, after he had spoken to them. It says, after he had said these things, he was lifted up. This is Acts chapter 1. Christ was lifted up in front of all these people. He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. In verse 10 of Acts chapter 1, 
And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, man, that's the exact scene. These people on earth through, you imagine the cameras are right there on them as they're going up. I can't even imagine. Can you imagine the panic worldwide as the TV is replaying this over and over again, quick, playing it over and over again. They stood up and a voice says, come up here. And whether the people hear that voice, I don't know. Probably so. Uh, and I think they, now, I think, I don't know who, who I read so much on this, but one of the uh, commentators said they were probably smiling as they went up. <laughs> well, I'll tell you who wasn't smiling is the people in that city. I don't think they were smiling at all. Why, that wouldn't be a perfect, uh, that would not be a, a perfect scenario for the uh, party cr- crasher uh, to have. They hear the voice. Now, now, imagine hearing that voice. Well, something else is going to happen. Okay, we see the place was uh, Jerusalem. The party has begun in verses 9 and 10. The panic in verses 11 and 12 and the voice from heaven. But God sends a punctuation. I had to come up with another P. A punctuation on this whole scene, this whole end of the three and a half year ministry of these guys. And look at what he does. And in that great hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. That's why I said when when the when they they saw them going up into heaven. That's when you start saying, "Uh oh, this doesn't look good." That's when you don't want to be in that city. Imagine this. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. Now, some people say, wow, there, there's a lot of things going on here. Uh, this is not a, a just an earthquake. This is a, a great earthquake. Look at what it says. A great earthquake. That means large. Some people say, well, it just means another earthquake. I don't know what it means. I just know it was enough to take away a, a tenth of the city. And I know that it killed a lot of people. That's all I need to know. What great means, I don't know. It probably does mean great, bigger than uh, the average. Remember now, one of the signs of the times, even before the tribulation starts, is the uh, the many earthquakes. So I imagine, that, and we can read about them as we go through. They, they're happening all the time. But this is the great one. This is the big one. And we're going to see another one later. But this giving glory to God, some are saying, well, that is actually really... Uh, the Jews that are getting saved, that is the actual salvation. And there's a good argument for that. Uh, giving glory to God because that's what salvation actually is. It is giving glory to God. And it's uh, actually a, a wonderful thing to, to see this. Uh, the Jews in that moment do what the Gentiles have been asked to do throughout the whole period. Uh, they say with a loud voice to all the tribes and tongues, Fear God and give Him glory in Revelation fourteen seven. Uh, and so this is what everyone is doing. They're giving him glory, fearing God and giving him glory. In chapter 16, verse 9, but the men were scorched with fierce heat. This is one of the bold judgments. Uh, they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. They did not repent so as to give him glory. So we see this giving him glory uh, is, a, is a saving response. They were fearing God, worshiping the true God, repenting of their sin, because this is how glory is given to God and those who reference Him, and, that, and that's this what these references are, are indicating to us. Uh, we found it in, in, in Revelation fourteen verse seven, Revelation sixteen verse nine. 
Giving glory to God is an appropriate response. They had heard the preaching of these men for a long time. They've heard the preaching. Remember now, the 144,000 are still there too. The gospel was being made available to them. And finally in that moment, the remaining remnant of Israel, I believe, is described as believing. Now, is that actually true? I don't know. I won't be there. I know what I'm reading and what a tremendous thing this is. And folks, I am out of time. So for now, this is William Rogers bringing you hope for the heart as we do look at a, uh, a study of the book of Revelation, chapter 11. And this topic, the title again was the absolute, absolutely invincible uh, Revelation, chapter 11, 5 through 13. Thank you so much for joining us today.